If you can, get your Bibles out and follow along with us. And while we're doing that, I'm going to get a Bible. <laughs> uh, can I get one? Uh, Paco, could you bring up a Bible for me from the back of the church, please? Oh, thanks. Never mind, Paco, it's for yourself. Get yourself a Bible. <laughs> thanks, Dan. Uh, I'm using the same Bible that you guys will be using uh, if you're borrowing one from the church. And we're continuing on our series in the Beatitudes. And if you're here last week, we're going to do a quick recap. But in the uh, Beatitudes, it's in chapter 5, verse 1, in the book of Matthew. So uh, if you're in this Bible that the church has, it's page 960. And a quick recap from last week. Just so we always understand the Beatitudes as a whole together and we we don't break these up too much. Uh, But a quick recap about the Beatitudes is keep in mind they are a description of the same eternal blessing. So so when we see eight different Beatitudes, they're not eight different ways of how to be blessed by God. But rather they are eight different descriptions of the same eternal blessing by God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so as we look at these as symptoms of a changed heart... Uh, These are symptoms of a heart that has been regenerated by God, by the grace of God, through their faith in Christ Jesus alone. And and through that faith, our heart is made new by God. And so Corinthians says that all things are made new. And so keep in mind that as we go through these Beatitudes, they are descriptions of the same eternal blessing that every believer enjoys in Christ Jesus, which is eternal life. It's his forgiveness for our sins. It's life with God. Another thing to keep in mind is that every Christian is going to have a basic understanding of each of these Beatitudes. Why? Because it's a symptom of a changed heart. If your heart's been changed by God, you're going to have a basic understanding of all these Beatitudes. But at the same time, we are growing in these Beatitudes as God sanctifies us, as he conforms us to the image of his son. And so if you come across these Beatitudes and you're kind of convicted of maybe you know that you're not very strong in this area, but you know that it's true, you know that it's something you you need to be striving for, rest assured that that all your sins are forgiven in Christ, and now you get to enjoy growth in Christ the rest of your life. There's no more guilt, no more shame, uh, no fear of death anymore, but God is faithful to complete the work that he began in us. And so these Beatitudes are meant to be grown into over time as we mature in our faith. So let's get right to it. Uh, to the, the, we're on the fifth Beatitude, which is, Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. And what leads us up to the, Blessed be are the merciful, uh, it starts off by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle or the meek. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we, uh, we went over how it, it's almost like this, even though all these happen simultaneously in a believer's heart, we kind of see that at the same time there's a progression of how God works in our lives. That being poor in spirit, you're humbled before God. You humble yourself before God, that you are spiritually bankrupt without him. And then in that humility, we mourn over that which separates us from God, which is our sin, and we are comforted by his forgiveness. And then as we mourn over our sins, we are then essentially saying, God, your ways are not my ways. I'm submitting myself and being gentle and meek that I can submit myself to your ways instead of my ways, which separated me from you. And that's where we get the third beatitude of blessed are those who are the gentle for they will inherit the earth. And as we grow in in our submission to the will of God, 
we are also growing in our hunger and our desire for God's righteousness and not our own. So it's not what we think is good and bad, but it's what now desiring God's definition of what is truly righteous and what is truly evil. And it's through his word that we are guided in those things. So the next one is, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now, there's uh, several examples in this. You know, uh, I think uh, one of the typical ways to read this passage is, you will only receive mercy if you're merciful. Well, that was true in the time when Jesus was teaching this. Jesus had not yet died on the cross for sins for all time. He has not yet completed the work uh, that, that he came to complete on his mission in earth as fully God and fully man. And so the Jews did live in, in this constant state of anxiety because not all their sins were forgiven. As they sinned, they had to approach God through the high priest for forgiveness. And we see in instructions for that they had in the law in Leviticus 4. If you look in Leviticus 4, uh, you're going to see time and time again, it, it, it ends with this saying, as they bring their offerings to the priest on behalf of their, for, uh, for their forgiveness, and it ends by saying, and he will be forgiven. It's upon their seeking God's forgiveness and bringing their offering to the priest who represents uh, them before God is then they are forgiven. So there was this amount of anxiety. They didn't have the same uh, security of their salvation that we enjoy today of Jesus who died on the cross for all sins for all time and was resurrected, and we have our confidence of our resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus. So this is the context of Jesus teaching this, is that he has not yet done these things, and so all these things are still very true. We see a couple examples in Jesus' own teachings about, uh, there's one specifically in Matthew 18, it's about the unmerciful servant. And, and the story goes something like this, quickly paraphrases, Jesus giving an illustration about what it means to forgive, truly forgive your brother who has hurt you. And he gives this illustration of, of one servant who owed his, owed his master 10,000 talents. Now it doesn't mean anything to us today, those words. But think about this, the, the word, uh, the number 10,000 was essentially the biggest number they could think of back then. So Jesus is using the example of the largest number they would have been able to think of and write down, and then he uses talents as a denomination of the money, and the talent was the largest denomination of money that they had. So we might think of the $100 bill, uh, and, and so think about the largest number that we could write down on paper times 100. That's the point Jesus is trying to get across. And, and so the servant who owed this master that much money, he begged and begged for forgiveness, and the master forgave it. That same servant had another servant who owed him uh, it was 500 denarii. And a denarii is one day's wage and five times 500. So nowhere close to the largest number that Jesus used for the first example. And that servant couldn't find it in his heart to forgive his fellow servant, even though he was, a, he was just forgiven for this insurmountable debt that he owed to his master. And Jesus ends this teaching by saying these chilling words that would have been very chilling for them is, your Father in heaven will not forgive you unless you forgive your brother. That was a heavy statement. When we think about this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy now that we know that Christ has died on the cross for us, for all our sins, for all time, in Hebrews 10, 11 to 18, uh, it, it talks about this very thing. Uh, if you look at Leviticus 4, 
and you see how they have to bring their offering for their forgiveness, and they have to do that over and over again. And then you read Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering, time after time, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for, for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It says, for, By one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. How life would have changed for a Jewish man to come to faith in Jesus after that. They were preaching the gospel to the Jews immediately after the resurrection. And this would have been incredible news for them. To not have to bring an offering day after day. That is a mercy that we enjoy as Christians. That we have received the mercy of God. And, and it's going to bring its full uh, fulfillment at the end of our life. And when God makes all things new, we will have the ultimate experience of that mercy that has come over our lives through the blood of Christ. So Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will receive mercy. How we read it today, post the resurrection of Christ, that if you have experienced the mercy of God, as a, it's a symptom of a changed heart, that God has changed your heart because you have experienced the mercy of God through the blood of Christ, covering all your sins, you will then, in turn, inevitably be more merciful. This is a symptom of a changed heart. You're not trying to earn God's mercy, but in fact you have received God's mercy, and now it has changed your life in a way that you are now more merciful as a direct result of the mercy that you've experienced firsthand. Uh, the Apostle Paul was very aware of this mercy. In 1 Timothy Chapter 1, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as a foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That was the mercy that Paul was aware of and it made him more merciful. Let's just stop right here. I normally pray for God's blessing over this time, and I didn't do that yet. Uh, let's just do that right now. Lord, I know that your mercy is rich even in this moment. That we normally come before you before we look at your word and study your word, that you, it is you that guides us in understanding your word. It is not me. It is not any pastor or anyone else. It's your spirit that guides us. And we rely upon your spirit more than we rely upon man to understand your word. But you have graciously given man the ability to, ability to preach your word and to teach your word and to study your word. And so we just pray for your blessing over this time as we get into it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I know last week uh, several of you thanked me for putting uh, passages up on the screen. And uh, that was a great encouragement to me. And I'm... 
I have my PowerPoint, but I forgot to give it to the guys in the back. So I'll be reading some longer passages, and I'm, I apologize that it's not on the screen this week. I probably really got your hopes up after last Sunday, so uh, bear with me on that. But in this mercy of God, we see in Romans 5, it says the law came in so that transgression would what? You guys remember this? The law came in so that sin would what? Increase, right? Our knowledge of our sin would increase as we understand the law. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what it means to be merciful, is that we have simply experienced the mercy of God, and we don't have a choice anymore but to be merciful. If a believer has truly understood and truly experienced the mercy of God and the forgiveness over their insurmountable debt, it'll allow us to be more merciful to our fellow man who has sinned against us in, in an amount that hardly even compares to a fraction of what God has forgiven us for. To say that we've been forgiven of all our sin, past, present, and future, we have no idea what kind of big mistakes we're going to make in the future, and yet... The blood of Christ covers that as well. It is unfathomable in human understandings of, of forgiveness. I mentioned before that we all grow in these Beatitudes as Christians, and, and so the question would be, well, how do we grow in mercy? I, I think it's not something that we, we just try to do by our own grit and our strength to grow in being more merciful, but I think it comes, once again, as a symptom of our changed heart. I think we could simply... Focus on repeating Beatitudes 1 through 4. Remaining humble before the God, before our God. Uh, remaining mournful over when we know that we've sinned against God and against others. Uh, submitting ourselves to the ways of God and being meek and gentle. Uh, saying that, God, my ways are not your ways. I'm going to submit myself to your ways. And then if we continue to desire the righteousness of God, then all those things, that process of humility and recognizing your sinfulness and submitting our ways to God, it's going to cause us to be, allow us to be more merciful. As we are more aware of ourselves and our own brokenness, it's going to help remove any pride that we have. And it's going to allow us, as we set aside our pride, then the mercy should follow. So this isn't a matter of just saying to someone, I forgive you even though it means nothing to you in your heart, but you're, you're just saying it because you know it's the right thing. That's not how we become more merciful. We become more merciful by reflecting upon God's mercy in us. And Beatitudes 1 through 4, I think, do a great job of pointing us back to the mercy of God. I think one of the most difficult things for people to understand is when do we know that forgiveness has truly been accomplished? When we think we've forgiven someone, and then we see them again, and, and all these other emotions uh, come up, and, and it turns out we, we didn't forgive them at all. I think there's, there's just two ways. I'm sure there's many ways to understand if forgiveness has been accomplished, but there, there's two ways I just want to mention. Number one is when the offense has no longer hindered you in loving that person, how God commands us to love. This doesn't mean that you, you bring down all your barriers and all your boundaries and and uh, make yourself completely vulnerable to everyone at every moment. That's not what forgiveness means. Uh, but when forgiveness has been accomplished, it's when you can truly desire that which is good for them. You, when you actually desire God's righteousness for them. If they're a lost person, they don't have faith in Christ, you can actually desire for them to be saved, knowing that you're going to spend eternity in heaven with them. 
And if that doesn't sound if that doesn't sound good to you, then you probably haven't really forgiven them yet. So I think when we can realize that we're not secretly happy when things go wrong for them, or we're not secretly secretly thinking, oh yeah, they finally got what they deserved. When we're past those things and actually mourning for them, see them struggling in their sin, and we actually are mourning for them on their behalf, saying, uh, saying to ourselves, I hope that they could find the Lord through these things. I think that's one of the ways that we can understand when forgiveness has been accomplished. The next beatitude is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they are the ones who will see God. They shall see God. Oh, seeing God's face for the nation of Israel is one of the, the greatest blessings they would have been looking forward to. You know, up to the, uh, throughout their history, they, they know of Moses seeing God in a burning bush or speaking to God on the mountain in a, pillar, in a big old cloud where he, Moses was speaking to God face to face, but we see that he wasn't seeing him face to face, that God's glory was still veiled in some way. And, and Israel followed God in a pillar of a cloud and fire when they were, when they were uh, freed from Egypt. So we see all these ways that they saw veiled uh, uh, instances of God's glory, but they never seen God's face. And for them, their hope was that eventually they would see the face of the God that they've been worshiping and following, the God who's been faithful to them all these years, that the ultimate blessing would be to see the face of God. The God that called them out, the God that chose them out of all the other nations. So the nation of Israel would have would have always wanted to see what we call the beatific vision. Uh, we see we're uh, looking at the beatitudes. Well, the beatific vision is the the vision of God uh, in all His glory that's no longer be veiled. Uh, we see this in Numbers uh, chapter six, where where Aaron's given a blessing to give to the people of Israel. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. The psalmist in Psalm 24 says this about the face of God. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and see him? Uh, and who may stand in his holy place, he who has a clean, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, but has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. One more I'll read is Psalm 27. It says, one thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. For in the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on the rock. And now my head will be lifted above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me, and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, God, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. This was the goal 
of an Israelite. That they would, and this goal of God for the Israelites, that they would seek his face and the blessing with that, his face would shine upon them. For Christians today, we know that that's going to be in a time after our time is up here on earth. When our life is over on earth and we're called home to God, we're going to see God in all his glory. He's going to make all things new. We're going to enjoy the presence of God as the psalmist envisioned. And the psalmist, what he envisioned, uh, he probably had no idea what it was actually going to look like. It was a dream to him. But it's all going to come to fruition in the end. As for the Christian, we know that we will see God's face because the righteousness of Jesus allows us to. And that's what gets us to the presence of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, so the, one of the questions now is, well, who are the pure in heart? Uh, what does it mean to be pure in heart? How do I know if I'm pure in heart? Uh, I think a lot of times people might uh, have doubts of their salvation because they're going through certain struggles or, or they're going through certain uh, struggles with sin or struggles with life circumstances. And they're not sure if they're pure in heart because maybe there's times that they doubt. Maybe there's times that they, they know they've sinned when they, uh, when they knew better. So this question comes now, well, who are the pure in heart? It's those who are solely devoted to serving God. Now, that doesn't mean that we never make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. Uh, we know that through just King David's example, that he was a man after God's own heart, and yet he sinned greatly, and he worshiped God greatly. It's those who are solely devoted to serving God. Uh, Jesus gave a teaching in Matthew 6 about uh, two masters and how no one can serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other or serve one and despise the other. And he, he gives that, that teaching right after he talks about how the Pharisees, don't be like the Pharisees who are always seeking to please man because their reward is that they're pleasing men and, and they think that because they're pleasing men, then, then they're pleasing God at the same time because all these men approve of them. And so Jesus' warning about them is, is, is this at the end, you cannot serve two masters. Quit trying to please people and please God at the same time because one of those are going to be sacrificed in the end. It's the one who is solely devoted to serving God is who is pure in heart. There's a parable of the sowers that we know as Christians pretty well, and there's four different soils. There's the rocks that don't make it where the seed falls, and the seed represents the word of God. That doesn't make it anywhere in terms of its growth. And we have the, uh, the rocky soil where it grows for a short time, and then it goes away. And then we have the third soil of the thorns. Uh, same thing, it grows for a short time. And it's choked up by the thorns and it goes away. And then there's a fourth soil, which is the good soil. And that's the one soil that receives the word of God uh, wholeheartedly with a pure heart and, pro and produces fruit for the Lord. Now, there, we don't become the good soil after being rocky soil. It's not a progression that Jesus was teaching. It, it, it's a heart issue. You don't start off as being rocky soil and graduate to uh, uh, thorny soil and graduate to good soil. That's not how it works. Jesus is getting at the heart of man. There will be those who appear that they're serving God, or, or maybe they think that they're serving God, and time is the ultimate test for them. And time will tell for them that whether or not they were truly pure in heart or not. 
The, did they get distracted by the worries of this world? Did they get distracted by their own sinfulness? Did they get distracted by, by worldly issues that they thought were more important than serving God himself? That's what the parable of the sower is all about. It's about the heart of man and that every heart is not going to receive God's word with a pure heart. And so how does a Christian grow in, a, in being pure in heart? Uh, I, so I, this is a tough issue because I don't think we do grow in being pure in heart. And, and I was pondering this and studying this through scripture and, and just uh, praying about it myself. I don't think we grow in being pure in heart. It, it's either you have it or you don't. We, we know this by the thief on the cross who died next to Jesus when he said, even though he lived a whole life of sin and he was going to be crucified for his sin next to Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. And what did Jesus say back to him? He said, surely you will be with me in paradise. See, he didn't earn that forgiveness. He didn't uh, have to live a whole life showing that he was pure in heart. Jesus knew the heart of man and he knew that he had a pure heart in what he said. So a, a pure heart for God is something that either you have or you don't. I don't think you grow in having a pure heart for God. You don't, uh, I would even argue that maybe it is that we don't actually grow in our love for God. It's either you truly love him or you don't. That we don't love God more or less just because we're struggling at certain times. I, I think for the one who's pure in heart, they still love God just as much. They're just struggling. And we don't grow in how much we love God, but we do grow in how we display our love for God. As time goes on, as God sanctifies us and matures us, we are going to grow in how we display our love and affection for God. And just because we're getting better at it doesn't mean that we love God more. It just means that our genuine love for God is what's fueling our maturity in knowing how to love him more. To use an earthly example, which is always dangerous when comparing our relationship to God, but I'll do it anyways, is if I were to ask myself, do I love my wife more after 10 years, uh, the short answer would be, no, I don't. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, God has been so gracious in allowing me to mature in how I show her I love her. That's just because our, our marriage might struggle or we have arguments. That doesn't mean that I love her less in those times and my love for her is going, constantly going up and down. Uh, that's not what a pure heart does. I love my wife just as much as I, the day we married but God, by his grace, has allowed me to grow and mature in how I show my love for her, even though I still struggle. This is why it's so dangerous when couples in love make that promise, I promise I'll never hurt you, because there's no such promise that will ever be uh, kept in life, that no matter how much love you have for someone, no matter how pure in heart you are for somebody, you're going to hurt them, whether you're trying to or not. You're going to do something that doesn't meet their expectations. You're going to do something that hurts their feelings and without knowing it. Uh, people should never be promising each other, I will never hurt you. Because that's a promise we can never keep. That's a promise we can't even keep to God. Which is why he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. So think about that in your own relationships. Uh, you know, if you uh, maybe, maybe disagree on me on this part. And I would love to have more conversation about this. Because it's kind of a more philo philosophical idea. But I, I, I present the idea that a pure heart is something that we either have or we don't. And we know this because a person can be saved on, in their dying breath by the grace of God 
because they have a decision made in their heart with a pure heart. It's not that they love God any more or less than those who are able to live for God for 40, 50, 60 years. No. It's the fact that they have a genuine love for God in that moment, and God grants them salvation because of their faith in Jesus. So this is not something that we grow into. To be pure in heart, you either have it or you don't. When somebody is born again, they're saved by the sincerity of their belief in Jesus. That's what makes your heart pure. Let's go to the next one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God peacemakers what constitutes as a peacemaker is this someone who always uh does whatever it takes to have peace uh even if it means uh sacrificing all morals and everything else just so that people get along that's not the peace that god's talking about here we have to understand once again post christ's death and resurrection what does it mean to be a peacemaker well we know that christ who is prophesied in isaiah to be the prince of peace whose kingdom will be everlasting, because in his kingdom there will be eternal peace. Who's the one that brought peace between man and God? It was Jesus. Jesus wasn't concerned so much about everyone getting along. He was concerned about people being in a reconciled relationship with God. That's what John 3.16 is all about. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus came to bring peace. When he came to earth, he came to bring peace between not all men, but between God and man. Every man that believes in him will now have peace where there was no peace. That, that God's wrath is storing up against all those who do not have faith in Jesus. We see this in Romans, that God's wrath is not being displayed on us right now. It's being stored up and reserved for the day of our death for those who don't have faith in Jesus that's when God's wrath comes full force on them. And so there is hope for every person who's still breathing that they can experience peace with God. That Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. So he's our example. That's our example of what a peacemaker is. It's the one who brings peace between man and God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed and the new have come. Uh, later finishes by saying, "Who Jesus, uh, or now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, and though we are making uh, though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is Paul's plea to those who are unsaved. Be reconciled to God. It's a call to salvation. What it means to be called a son of God in the time was uh, you were identified many times by whose son you were or uh, what, uh, what characterized you as the son. So if you were to say that uh, to be a son of a dog, uh, I'll use that example because it's opposite of God. Uh, to be a son of a dog is not insulting a dog. It's insulting the son of the dog, right? That they are taking on the characteristics of that dog. To be son of God is not um, 
complimenting God so much is complimenting the son who is displaying the character of God. So to be called the son of someone it, it should, is normally used as a compliment. It means that you're taking on the characteristic of that which you're the son of. And that was the significance of, of their day back then. To be called a son of God is, uh, it meant that if you're a peacemaker, you are taking on the very characteristic of Christ, who is the son of God, but you are now in the likeness of the son, but you are a peacemaker as Jesus is a peacemaker. You are seeking peace with others. First uh, Thessalonians, as what Andy has been preaching to, says, and to make Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So this idea of being a peacemaker is not just with other believers, but it's also our relationship with outsiders, with unbelievers, those who do not believe in Jesus, that we should still be seeking harmony with them in in a lot of ways by living above reproach. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 1, 9 says, in the same way, uh, this is instruction for when there's uh, uh, dissonance in marriage, when there's imbalance in marriage, if there's a believer married to unbeliever. These are instructions for those believers who are, who are married to unbelievers. It says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they might be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in the same way, former times, the the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, uh, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Uh, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. And then for husbands, it says, for the husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and she and show her honor, and as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers do not be hindered. And this is a call for marriages where there's unequal yoke where there's a, a believer married to unbeliever, is that our hope is that the unbeliever might be saved by the good behavior and the proper behavior by the believing spouse, that they're living as a peacemaker, because ultimately they're seeking that that person has peace between them and God, that they will experience Jesus Christ as the ultimate peacemaker for them. That should be the hope of the believing spouse for their unbelieving spouse. We have so many examples of this. First Peter later on talks about what it means when, when you're persecuted. It says to get, when, be ready to make a defense to everyone who questions you about your faith, but you do it in gentleness and respect. Something that is often overlooked when we're confronted about our faith, to do it in gentleness and respect. It's easy to get, uh, to get defensive and to offend the other person in, li- in likeness uh, because they offended us. We want to offend them back or offend their beliefs, offend their faith. But we're instructed to do so in gentleness and respect. Romans 12, a quick one. It says, never pay back evil to anyone, but respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So we see these instructions time and time again. 
that we are to be at peace with even unbelievers, that we better be above reproach with them. And it's going to come into play for the next beatitude because it's going to be very important. Uh, Jesus did not come so that we could all live peacefully together uh, and, and sacrifice all our morals and all of God's instructions. Uh, there, is a, there is a limit to which we are to be peacemakers because Jesus came uh, not to bring peace on earth, but to bring a sword, to bring division, he said. Meaning that our faith in Christ, being at peace with God, is actually going to cause division with other people on earth for those who don't believe. And it, um, peace will be literally impossible with them at some times because they are simply against the message of the gospel. So no matter how nice we are, no matter how loving we are, no, how, no matter how uh, honest we are towards other people, uh, there will be those in this life that we will not have peace with them simply because of our faith in Christ. And that brings us to the last beatitude. Is blessed are the, I'm going to sum it up, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you read the whole thing, it says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One last thing on reconciled relationships, that we should always be seeking reconciliation with one another, is the sadness and the tragedy of how many times people don't bother to reconcile human relationships because it's awkward for them to do so. There's pride in the way. Uh, many times people don't get to experience the joy of what comes after reconciliation because they call it quits on the relationship so soon, even between friendships. And I think if we just place our faith in God in this, and that reconciling is always a better option, as Christians we will experience the, the greater joy in our life because we've actually experienced firsthand uh, an earthly example of what it means to be uh, reconciled in a relationship where there was no peace. And that reconciliation should point us back to Christ of reminding us the peace that we have with God now because of Christ. So if you think it's hard work to be reconciled between your fellow man, you reflect upon how hard it was and impossible it was to be reconciled with God without Jesus. I think most marriages can be saved when they are uh, when they end up in divorce, and a lot of times uh, uh, it, it could be justified by adultery. Jesus said uh, that divorce, uh, the one reason for anyone to divorce their spouse is reasons for adultery, for unfaithfulness. But I think a marriage unreconciled long enough will inevitably result in adultery. I don't think it starts off that way many times. It's usually just a disagreement or they, they don't see eye to eye. And as they live their life together in an unreconciled manner, eventually there's going to be a desire for others, a desire for unfaithfulness, a desire to, uh, to look elsewhere for what you think is going to be better for you. I don't think it, always, it, it often starts off as adultery. But for marriages that go prolonged without reconciling, my fear is that it, in, it will inevitably end up as adultery because you're going to eventually desire someone else. I mean, the Beatitudes are great dating advice. Don't you want to find a mate? 
who is humble before God, who, who is aware of their sinfulness, who submits to God's word instead of their own, who desires a greater righteousness better than theirs, uh, uh, who, who uh, desires, uh, who uh, uh, displays mercy in their life, uh, someone who's merciful, someone who is genuine in their love for God and love for, for you, uh, who's someone who's a peacemaker, and someone who stands for their faith so much that they won't shy away from persecution. This is great material for finding a mate. If, if we're to give dating advice to young people, I think the Beatitudes is a great one. Because if you know that these are symptoms of a changed heart, then we know that these are descriptions of someone who truly loves God. And why would, as a Christian, why would you want to settle for anything less than someone who's able to love you the way that you're supposed to be loved? Last one is, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you know, being, uh, even as peacemakers, we are going to cause division in this world. So there is going to be persecution. There is going to be unrest. There is going to be division. Uh, Jesus came to bring a sword and bring division. He said that you cannot follow me unless you hate your mother, father, brother, sister. And he actually used that word hate. That doesn't mean that you mistreat them in any way, but it means, Ken, what we went back to in pure in heart, it means that who do you truly love? Who are you solely devoted to please and to serve? Is it God or is it man? And to man, if we truly love God, there's going to be times when our fellow man is going to be offended by that. To them it's going to feel like hatred because we are choosing our soul devotion for God instead of our soul devotion to make them happy. Now, God calls us to love one another and to treat them a certain way in a very loving manner. But at some point, uh, for unbelievers, they're gonna, uh, are, are, uh, we're going to have a conflict of interest there. So we're called to live in a way that is so genuine that persecution is, gonna be, is eventually going to come to those who live out their faith in a genuine manner, in an authentic manner. This is not a way of saying that you need to go out after, after Sunday today and, and get persecuted so you feel better about yourself. Uh, this is not like a call to persecution. It is more like if you live out your faith authentically, pure in heart, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Why? Because it means that you're actually living your faith. It means that you're, you actually love God so much that it doesn't matter who's watching or it doesn't matter who cares you're still living out your, your faith in a purity of heart that others are going to notice, and it's going to invite persecution. Daniel, King Daniel, or not King Daniel, Daniel, uh, in the book of Daniel, was uh, a great example of this, of what it means to be persecuted for righteousness and nothing else. That, that the King Darius liked him so much, but these other guys did not. And so what they tried to do is find something to find against Daniel, to bring against him, to bring him out of power. But they couldn't find anything against him and how he conducted himself as a human being. So what they did was to convince King Darius, who, who likes Daniel, they convinced him to pass a law of saying, no one can worship any god except you, King Darius. Of course, Darius liked the sound of that, so he signed off on this. He didn't realize what their ultimate plan was. It was just to catch Daniel. Why? Because they knew that Daniel's faith was so devoted to his God, they knew that if they made a law uh, uh, against him worshiping his God, he would still do it anyways, and they would be able to catch him finally in breaking the law. So when Daniel went out and prayed, as he did normally, as was his own conviction to do three times a day, facing Jerusalem, praying to God, giving thanks to him, 
he never stopped doing that, knowing that the law was passed. He didn't do it to spite the law. You know, he didn't say, oh, well, now they passed the law. I'm going to find all kinds of ways to pray in public so people see me. No, no. He was so pure in heart that he already had this conviction and this habit of being seen and praying to his God that a law being passed had no, uh, had no effect on him whatsoever. I think as Christians, it's easy for us to, be, fall, to fall into this temptation of when the government says certain things about us that we want to do things more just to tick off the government or make our neighbors upset or, or be seen even more by other people around here. And I would argue that that's not coming out of a pure heart. It's not coming out of a pure, as a genuine love for God if we don't already have that conviction. It shouldn't take a law from man to get us to worship God more. So when we, when we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, it means persecuted for your soul devotion to the Lord. That we're not being persecuted. There's plenty of ways that we get persecuted that we claim it's because we're Christian. I think if we're uh, um, uh, driving home and there's people honking at us and, and we're uh, people mad at us, we, we sometimes it could be like, it's happening because I'm a Christian, right? And, and they're, they're, uh, we're being persecuted because of our faith. Or, or when people get mad at us at work or they don't like us as coworkers or as a boss. And sometimes we just chalk it right up to, oh, it's because I'm a Christian. They don't like that. Well, it's very possible that we're just not very nice coworkers. It's very possible that we're bad drivers. It's very possible that, that we are impatient with people or we don't treat, treat, treat each other kindly enough. Uh, all those things are very possible. What it means to be persecuted for the sake of Christ means that it's your sole devotion to Christ is what's coming under fire. So that when someone persecutes us rightly, they would say, man, that guy is so nice, but it's too bad he's a Christian. Well, Christians should be the best employees. Christians should be the best bosses. Christians should be the best friends. We should be the most honest people, the most giving people, the most generous, uh, uh, the most forgiving people. We should be the most uh, 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 welcoming people, most hospitable. Christians should be the most out of all these great qualities. And so what it means to be persecuted for Christ's sake means that they can't bring any of those areas against you except for your faith in Christ. So as Christians, I think we need to be humble about this. And when we feel persecuted, we really need to step back and evaluate what is it that we're being persecuted for. Is there anything in the situation that we need to be humble about and we maybe even need to offer, uh, uh, ask for forgiveness from another man for? That there's something that they might be right about? Maybe they're right about the way I drive or the way I treat them or the way that I talk to people. Maybe they're right about those things. I think to sum up the Beatitudes, we'll do it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. For these are descriptions of those who have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer and we'll do the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we come before you with all humility. As we partake of the Lord's Supper together, the body and the bread was given for us, the blood that was shed for us, so that we uh, can always remember that you have changed our hearts. And Lord, I pray for anyone, anyone in this room who questions whether or not they have peace with you, I pray that you grant them that faith now, convict them now, 
uh, of the, the forgiveness that is offered to all those who call upon your name. It is with a heart a person believes. It's not by our works. It's not by trying to show other people that we believe. It's with our heart that we believe and our mouth that we confess that Jesus is Lord and we are saved. You know that those who have a pure heart. So, Father, we pray for the salvation of anyone in this room that, that wants it, that they would receive it now in this moment, that they call upon you in faith and a purity of their heart. So we thank you. We praise you. We pray for your help and continuous to help us grow in these areas of how you've changed our heart already, and we have much more growing to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.